I'm Chef Pete Gagan from Cargill, and we're in the kitchen with Sterling Silver Premium Meats. It's a podcast where we'll be serving up insights and perspectives for chefs and food service professionals. And of course, we'll be digging into the world of premium beef. Because even with over 30 years of culinary experience, I still have an appetite for learning more. I hope you're hungry too. This is part one of a two-part episode. Be sure to subscribe so you won't miss part two. Just follow the directions at the end to get every episode. We're coming to you from the Cargill Innovation Center in Wichita, Kansas. And today, we're talking seasonings, different types and best practices for each. And joining us today from the Chicago area is Timothy Barron, executive chef at Griffith Foods. As a bit of background, Chef Timothy has worked in many areas of the culinary industry, including fine dining and teaching, as well as participating in professional competitions. He's also a national champion official apprentice for the ACF Culinary Team USA and an official apprentice for the ACF Certified Master Chef Exam. In his current role at Griffith Foods, he creates culinary-inspired products and works with R&D to bring them to the market. Welcome to the kitchen, Chef. Yeah, thank you so much for having me today. Looking forward to the conversation. Really thrilled to have you on here, Chef. You know, we've got to know each other a little bit over the years. You always happy and just love food. So let's start off by giving our audience a little bit more of a glimpse into your background. Yeah. So currently I work for a company called Griffith Foods. Like you mentioned, I'm a corporate executive chef. And the really great thing about this role is I'm in the kitchen with a good team cooking up good food. But on top of that, we team up with research and development and we work on products and projects together for our customers. Mm -hmm. And as a chef, that's pretty amazing because you think about like back in the day, if I would have told you like, hey, instead of, you know, taking four hours to get this sauce nice and glossy and thick and shiny and that you could do it in minutes instead of hours, I would have said, hey, that sounds like magic. And to be able to go into the lab and have shelves full of magic and smart people to collaborate with is a chef's dream come true. I think it's a dream come true for anyone. Before that, I worked at a, a national protein processor in lunch meat, bacon, rope sausage, And that was a really interesting role because that introduced me to the manufacturing side of the world. And not Mm -hmm. every chef gets to look at that, get to see how the food is made for the masses. Before that, I taught at the college level. It was culinary classes, but then also towards the end, I got to do these lifelong learning development program almost where adults would come in. It was really eye-opening to see who's cooking today, how they're cooking and what they're doing in their kitchen. I didn't realize how useful it would be to my life now doing that kind of role. And then before that, it was fine dining, a lot of cooking, a lot of competition and just bearing myself in the food. So I've gotten to do a little bit of everything and I've gotten to meet some really great people along the way. I think in life, whether we're cooking or, you know, we're an accountant, it doesn't matter what it is. I think following that path and enjoying what we do and being happy at work, that's pretty much everything we're looking for in life, right? I love how you've touched a little bit of everything, it seems like, which led to this corporate job. So you get to at least look back on your career and think about those people who you might help today because you've been in that manufacturing world. So trying to help them with solutions is just that much easier with your background. Mm -hmm. Let's just start off with the basics. Everybody works with salt and pepper. 
I mean, you can be mm-hmm. that basic on a steak, on a piece of chicken, on your vegetables and so forth. Or you can go in lots of other directions with plenty of other seasonings. But most likely salt and pepper is going to be part of that blend. What are some best practices for using salt and pepper? The biggest thing about salt, I think, is just understanding what you're doing with it and how you're going to use it. And what I mean by that is, you know, there are very fine salts like that you might sprinkle on like a french fry that uh, dissolve right away and it hits your taste buds and you immediately get that burst of salt. Then there's a salt slightly coarser that you might find in like baked goods and things like that because you don't want pockets of salt in your baking and pastry items. Next would be some kind of flake salt. That would be uh, my choice to cook with because you can feel it and really control one seasoning, but also for visualness, like the flakiness on top of a, a nice steak that's just come off the grill or something. And then finally, you get into rock salts, which the only time I really ever use these is when they're in a grinder. I was reading an article recently about um, chefs in different parts of the world and how they would season Uh, and what kind of salt they would use. And before the invention of like all these different types of salt, people would season a lot with rock salt and it would literally bounce off the food. Mm -hmm. And I was talking with a chef down in South America and he was like, yeah, that's actually how we used to season food. We'd over season it all because they were these big clumps of meat and whatever would like stick stuck and everything else would just roll away. And I, I found that to be hilarious but kind of felt very fortunate now, like, wow, that's great that we have options and choices. The best way to store salt is somewhere nice and dry. You want to avoid moist areas. And then, of course, always clean hands when you're seasoning with. Those would be like best practices. And there's a lot more salt than that. Uh, You know, you think about your pink salts and things like that, but, you know, your everyday use, I always break it up into those four categories, ultra fine, fine, flake, and then rock. Gotcha. You know, I think in that flake category, you might also have your kosher salts mm-hmm. fall in that, you know, yes. to your true flakes finishing salts, right? Because yes. it's about texture and mm-hmm. appearance at that point. You know, and like you mentioned, the rock salt too. I mean, you're sure if you got a grinder, then that's great because <laughs> you can just throw that in your grinder and grind it if you choose. And that, again, it's your choice. I, I don't know. Sometimes working with a grinder in a restaurant's a little tough because you're handling so many different things mm-hmm. and, and your hands get all over that grinder and, and you, you end up transferring a lot of bacteria, in my, my opinion. So working out of a little dish or a well or something like that's always easier. And then to pepper, the servers, they might go out there and grind a little pepper onto, you know, finish your steaks, finish your salad, stuff like that. That's great. But those that are cooking with it in the back, having that fresh ground and working with it through service each time grinding it fresh is most likely going to get you the best flavor and is probably the cleanest way to work with it. I have mad respect for black pepper. In the years that I've been doing this, it's only gone up. If you would have asked me five or six years ago, I would have said a different spice, but I'd like to break down a few types of pepper here really fast, just so that there's some understanding about it. Mm -hmm. When you think about pepper, it's a commodity now, right? It's in every home, in every shelf, in every store, across the country, across the world. Everyone has it now. And the crazy thing is black pepper empires uh, raged war over black pepper because of 
the properties it brought, the flavor it brought. When you start to look at how, you know, spices started to trade throughout history and how, you know, trade routes opened up and then black pepper became more common, it's really interesting to look at that. But today, most people know, you know, four types of pepper, black pepper, white pepper, green pepper, and then finally pink peppercorns. Mm -hmm. So that cracked black pepper over your salad versus stuff sitting in the dish or the salt shaker and pepper shaker on the table tastes a little bit different. And that's because of how it's been held, you know, in a darker, cooler environment. But all pepper, regardless of where it's grown, is the same exact pepper species. So what I mean by that is it's literally the same product. It's not like a, a crossbred of something else, but it's all about the, uh, the like the terroir or the climate. And for those listening who's sure. not familiar with terroir, that's kind of what's going on in the air. That's why like cheeses, wines, meats from France or Italy might taste different than from a uh, basement in Milwaukee. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's going to have a different climate and flavor. But what black pepper is, is it's the berries of this plant that have been picked at peak ripeness, dried up and ground out. And then you get this really burst of flavorful spice. And the cool thing is, if you were to have like a pepper tasting and you taste one pepper and another pepper and you go, hey, why has this one got more flavor? Sometimes the, the easiest explanation is that that really great tasting pepper was grown by a farmer who knew what they were doing because it'll be a little bit more intense and complex and they treated that ground and that product with the utmost respect. So that's black pepper. Moving into white pepper, white pepper is uh, what you would call the, the purest uh, state of maybe the peppercorn itself, which means it, this is when it's freshly plucked from the vines. Uh, it's not yet ripe, but then it's uh, pickled. And by that, what I mean by pickled is it's peak ripeness, it's soaked in water, and then it has the outer layer removed. So it kind of has like this fermenty taste to it. Some people sometimes taste like hay or uh, dusky kind of taste. But again, that depends on how it was grown, how it was soaked, and how that outer layer was removed. Mm -hmm. Going into green peppercorn, this again is peppercorns that are not ripe and are picked. And that's it. And they need to be treated like a fresh fruit. Sometimes you'll find them in a brine. And then finally, this blew my brain years ago when I found it out, pink peppercorn is not actually a peppercorn. It's a dried berry. It comes from trees in like Peru and Brazil. And really the only kind of place that could grow them, like maybe, for instance, in the United States would be California, Texas, Florida, those southern states, maybe Arizona and Mexico uh, that have the climate for it. But they're literally called peppercorn because they look like a peppercorn. But um, that's like an info dump of pepper. But when you look at all three types of pepper, green, white, and black, come from the same plant, deliver different results, different flavors, and can have different results by how they're grown. Mad respect to the people doing it because it makes me as a chef want to become a little bit more clever with how I'm using it. Sure. Of course, flavor is huge, right? Right. How you're going to use black pepper versus white pepper versus green peppercorns, yeah. it's going to be a little different. Um, 100%. And, of course, there's different flavors. So you look at a green pepper and a red pepper when you talk of <laughs> fresh peppers, right? Green pepper is an under-ripened red pepper. Yeah. I can't stand them. 
and I'm sorry for those that love them out there. I'm not a fan. (laughs) But a green peppercorn has its place. White pepper has its place. You know, a Mm -hmm. lot of times you're going to find people who tend to use white pepper because they don't want the color. And that's traditional French cooking, right? You're going to do a potato leek soup and you want to have that bite from peppercorn in there, but you're not going to put black peppercorn in there because it's going to look dirty. So that's sometimes in their mind, that's why they use it, but then you would use a little bit of that um, fresh white peppercorn that you would grind. I'm a lover of black peppercorns. Yeah. In my opinion, the other ones can go away. That's fine. I mean, they again, they have their place, but <laughs> just give me that one black peppercorn, but treat it right. Crack it yeah. right before you're ready to use it or, you know, like I said, right before service, run some through the grinder, but toast them first too, right? So you pull those oils oh, out and yeah. get the most flavor that you can from that peppercorn. But if you grind it all beforehand and let it sit out, I mean, you just look at it, do a test and grind some, put it in a bowl, and then grind some two hours later and put them next to each other. The other stuff starts to look old and dried out. It just doesn't hold its color right. It doesn't look fresh anymore. It doesn't take long. I love that you called out the toasting of it. And I agree with you. You know, back in the day, like making consommes and stuff like that, we'd be using little bits of white pepper. And it is so easy to go from just enough too much in a split second. Mm -hmm. And you always have those earthy undertones. So, I mean, white pepper... I always feel like it's best to maybe compliment something in low levels. But I mean, black pepper, when you're toasting that peppercorn, when you're grinding it up fresh and you're sprinkling it on and you've got a great black pepper, you know, that pepperine, uh, that that nice pepper note just just pops to the surface. And I really love, you know, when you're looking at cooking now, people starting to acknowledge black pepper a little bit more like there's that whole aspect of I think you remember black pepper makes it look dirty, like you mentioned, you know, mm-hmm. classic French sure. cooking. But now, I mean, with coffee grinders and things, we can grind black pepper incredibly fine after toasting those peppercorns almost to the point where it's a gray and it disappears a little. It's like gray all the way to a nice big flake. So great call out on toasting it just to bring out those robust flavors. Anything you can do and freshen (laughs) it up, liven it up, you know, let's think about nuts. Go to a restaurant and you've got some walnuts or pecans or something like that that's on a salad. If they didn't toast them, they're okay. But a little bit of time in the oven, a little bit of time in the pan, and maybe you toasted them yesterday and you just need to flash them and bring them back. Two seconds of really hot oven. And it's a completely different experience than something that's basically raw, right? You know, it needs some heat because it just brings out the flavor and and, and Uh texture too, right? You get texture out of that. So, hey, pepper, salt. That should be in everybody's kitchen. Then you can go from there. Do you have to put pepper on everything? No. You have to put salt on everything? Mm, My opinion, yeah, at least a little. little. It doesn't have to be, you know, because it's so important. But now there's tons of other spices. And, of course, we cannot talk about everything that's out there, you know. But there's some basics that a lot of people work with. So I'm just going to bring up a few and maybe we get your take on them history or where it's from, but things like cumin, paprika, chili peppers, which could be, I mean, there's so many different chilies out there, right? But, you know, some of your basic chili peppers that are used that tend to be ground up and used as seasonings. And then even like onion and garlic, they get ground differently. Some are in powder form, some are granulated. Give me your thoughts on some of those. So the crazy thing is 
about some of these spices that we cook with today. And like when we think about like French cuisine as chefs, we look at like this is old school, old world cooking. And the first one I want to touch on, you you, you mentioned a few like uh, paprika and cumin and stuff like that. Is paprika is a new world spice. And what I mean by that is it comes from I won't pronounce it exactly right, but it comes from the same pepper that does cayenne pepper powder, capsicum mm-hmm. anunum, which is a, a chili pepper. And the great thing about paprika is it comes from the milder peppers that have a thinner flesh, so they're not as harsh. But the paprika that we're eating today comes from North America with a strong focus on um, not so much South America, but maybe like Central America, like uh, Mexico. and they were introduced to the old world. The Spanish brought them over in the 16th century about. I wasn't there. Uh, this is what I've heard, though. Mm-hmm. And um, the great thing is you can classify paprika into two categories, Spanish and Hungarian paprika. And for people who have never worked with those before, the biggest difference is Spanish paprika will be a, a little bit milder and Hungarian paprika will be smokier, have some of those dustier, earthy undertones. And it's really great for adding that earthy tone into your dish, that chili pop of flavor, and not like a fresh chili, like jalapeno, but more undertoned cooked chili without Mm -hmm. bringing that spice in. You know, Mm -hmm. let's say you were working with a piece of beef or chicken and you wanted to get some smokiness from it. But you don't want to put smoke on it because it's going to go in a smoker later and you don't want to soak it in anything or use any flavors or (laughs) liquid smoke, if I dare to say it, because that's hard to control sometimes. I mean, those who have a knack for liquid smoke and being able to control it, awesome. But like white pepper, it goes a long way. You can use, you know, Hungarian paprika here to apply some of that natural earthy smokiness to it. So love that spice. Chef, don't know if you have any questions as I'm rambling on about it. No, no, no. I mean, and you're talking about the paprika too, like, but you also like the Spanish paprika. They have actual smoked paprika too. Yes. I mean, those peppers are smoked and then ground. So it really adds a lot of smokiness to it. But what you're saying is that the Hungarian just has this natural hint of a smokiness behind it. I love it. Growing up, for me, it, it was something that they sprinkled on the chicken breast and the whole chickens in the grocery store. I didn't People didn't cook with it that much that I recall growing up. But there's just a lot that it can do today in spice rubs, in marinades. Definitely something that would love the effects of heating it in some fat beforehand, right? So fat-soluble, extract more flavor from it and color from it, basically. But definitely think about a lot of your barbecue rubs and all. They're going to have some paprika in it. You know, if anyone's, you know, listening like, man, these guys are crazy about heating up their spices. There are natural oils in those spices and they help carry that flavor, bring it back to life. Chef, I think you mentioned it, but I mm-hmm. I just wanted to throw it in there because um you're right. And then the only other thing I'd add on paprika would be most people, if they haven't used it, if they're not familiar with it, deviled eggs, right? I think everyone has had um a deviled egg, and that's probably where it's mostly used in, in in households, or at least used to be used in households. Sure, no doubt. I mean, you put a little smoked paprika on there. Even that's better, right. right. You know, it changes <laughs> it up. There's lots of 
again, recipes for marinades and rubs that you can put that in. And uh, again, just understanding that there are different types out there. And there's some that are a little bit spicier than others, smokier than others, worth playing around with if you haven't. So since we're talking about chilies, what about other chilies? You tend to see a lot of like ancho and chipotle, things like that, in basically ground form nowadays. Can you talk a little bit about those? So ancho and chipotle and things like that, these are richer flavors when comparing it to paprika. Like I would not call paprika bland by any means lots of great flavor but if you were to create like a spectrum right of like mm-hmm. where the chili powders kind of fall and lie i personally think ancho chili would fall a little bit towards the uh, yellow to red scale of intense flavor so ancho chilies have a super rich flavor right they're almost raisin like but without yep. that sugary sweetness and they are super earthy if you were to go to an ethnic store and pick these up dried, they would be in a bag and they would be big. They'd almost look like poblanos, but like super dried out. And that's exactly what they are. A poblano pepper, fresh, it's nice and bright green. An ancho chili is a poblano pepper that has been dried out. And again, how that pepper is treated is how it's going to kind of taste and look. But, you know, for people who are eating it at home or cooking with it in the restaurant, three things to remember about it. One, ancho chili is a staple for Mexican cuisine, right? It's one of those just awesome, rich flavors that pop out. And they're milder in heat. They are sweet, but not like raisin sweet. They taste, they got that raisin flavor, but they're not sweet like that, but sweet as in pepper form. And then they've got a smoky flavor. And it goes a really long way. Mm -hmm. And how it works is the peppers, they ripen on the plant. They'll actually turn red, so they're not picked green. And then they're dried out in the sun. They're literally sun-dried chilies. If you, like, see that on the logo or on the label or anything like that, that's, like, your gold standard of ancho chili peppers. Thinking back to, like, how cacao beans and vanilla beans and things like that are treated and dried naturally. You can go to the grocery store and and you can buy ground Mm -hmm. ancho, most likely. I mean, definitely Chipotle, I see that. But you can also go to a local market. And especially in a Latin market, there may be a bulk bin that you can grab some of these at. And if you were to take those and rip them open, take the seeds out, discard that, get rid of the placenta, basically, that holds on to the seeds and the stem, you'll clean them a little bit, and you just give them a quick toast in the oven, and Mm -hmm. then grind them up, and you can grind them in your own food processor or your, um, you know, your coffee grinder. That's going to be the way you get the best flavor. And then when you're going to cook with it, heating up a little oil and stuff, say you're making a chili, and that's the, you know, you're going to use some ancho, you're going to use paprika, you're going to use a lot of different um, ingredients in there, a little fat first, you know, you don't throw all Mm. that stuff into your broth and your liquid later on, you're going to use 10 times the amount and still not get that same flavor and that intense earthy notes that you were talking about, that raisin, all that's not, that's going to get lost if you don't take the time to do it correctly. Yes. You start building these flavors and you say to yourself, wow, like, what would I do with it once I got it home if I didn't use it all? The great thing is ancho chilies store really great in the freezer. And if you think you've never tried it, 
You might have because ancho chili chef is uh, it's one of those, you know, key ingredients in a mole. Right. Uh, mm -hmm. It really brings out like that rich, uh, meaty, smoky sauce. It brings it all together. So if there's folks out there that like that mole, it's that ancho chili pepper flavor that you're getting. Uh, so you would do well to cook with it. Hey, you mentioned chili powder before, and we're talking chilies themselves. And chili powder that you find on the shelf or you buy from your local um, you know, distributor and so forth, that tends to be a blend. Yes. And that's for making chili, but that has other seasonings in it. Yes, it has a lot of chilies in it, but mm -hmm. that even might have a little paprika in it. Might have some yes. ancho, might have some dried California chilies, things like that, and then it might have some cumin, uh, yes. some onion powder. All that it tends to be a, a mix. It's not just straight chilies. And again, we can go on forever about different types of chilies that are out there because there we are so many of them. I think the point here, though, is that to incorporate that into a seasoning or into a marinade, there's just ways that you can treat it to extract the most flavor from it. I would wipe them clean because they are a little dirty out there. I always like to wipe mm -hmm. the chilies on the outside. Give it a quick toast, and I'd actually reconstitute it in some water. And then puree it. And it's not going to hurt if you heat up a little bit of oil and add your puree into that. You know, you don't mm -hmm. want it smoking hot because it'll splatter all over you. And then you put that into your marinade. You know, oh, but yeah. toasting these, uh, warming them up, all of these, even warming up part of that marinade with certain mm -hmm. spices and everything in there. And then chilling it down and then putting your meat or, or whatever, vegetables, whatever you plan on marinating mm -hmm. into that marinade, you're just going to have so much more flavor. You'll create and get a little bit more flavor once that hits the heat, but it's really only on the outside at that point. Mm -hmm. in time. So mm -hmm. you want to think about how do I take those ingredients and make them do their part and really make what I'm eating mouthwatering. I think a lot of times you can have something that's marinated and say to yourself, why wasn't it more intense? thing to look at is go back and say, okay, did I get the best use out of all those ingredients? Did I use them the best way to mm -hmm. extract the most flavor so now that flavor imparts itself into the overall package right again just understanding what's water soluble what's fat soluble yes and even some items are alcohol soluble right i'd say fat's probably your friend on most even fresh herbs mm -hmm. oh you know, i'm gonna extract you know the those oils that are in there that are gonna give you the flavor too is gonna be more intense if you know how to get the most out of it Marinades are the big secret that no one talks about. So thanks for bringing that up because mm -hmm. it can literally take your piece of meat from here to here by just doing a little bit more work. We've all made marinade and, you know, you get your oil separation and all mm -hmm. that. So you got, you got to turn things into marinade. You know, you're in a restaurant, you might have a big vat and you're dumping a whole bunch of, of, of meat in there that you're marinating. Maybe it's for kebabs or something, right? You got a whole bunch yep. of sirloin in there. You're going to do some garlic sirloin kebabs. So you want it to sit and do its thing. It helps a little bit with tenderization, but definitely flavor profile, um, you know, and you want to make sure that you have a, a, a decent amount of salt. I've, I've seen people talk about, you know, you don't want to oversalt your marinade, but I also believe you don't want to undersalt your marinade either yes. because you need that salt to help with that whole osmosis piece. It, you yes. really do. I mean, it helps. It pulls out moisture, but then you give it time and it'll pull everything back in with it. You know, dry brining, same thing, right? You know, you want it to pull moisture out and then suck it back in. But there's ways to get that 
marinate in a lot easier. You can go to the store, you can go online and buy what they call the tumble marinade. I know you're yes. familiar with those, right? So tell the audience a little bit more about tumble marinating and what that does to that meat. 100%. So like you you had just mentioned here, Chef, before, I lumped them into my brain as such just for easy storage is that there are static marinades, which are the meat getting poured in with the brine, uh, nice and salty, maybe a little warm to help with that osmosis process happening. Uh, then there is your dry marinades, which are rubbed on and you let sit and soak in kind of like for your fish. Those seem to be quicker marinades. And then finally, like you mentioned, there are tumble marinades and also, you know, inject marinades. But tumble marinade has got to be my favorite so much that I even have a little tumble marinade machine tool at home. Uh-huh. And what it is, is it's the the meat uh, that's nice and dried off. Uh, it could be chicken, beef, pork, turkey, whatever you're kind of feeling. And there are two ways to do it. You can add your seasoning. Like, let's say you've got like a really favorite taco seasoning or uh, you really like your, your bouillon cubes and how they taste and you grind those up into a nice little uh, seasoning form. You can put that in by itself. And as you're tumbling this meat in this tumbler and it kind of rolls around nice and slowly maybe 15 or 20 minutes the proteins on the meat in the machine start to extract and it picks up that flavor but what it's also doing is it's kind of gently beating it up and it quickly 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 absorbs that flavor it kind of like expels and then inspells all of its juices i don't even know if that's a word but it, it's so, <laughs> i think it so, is now <laughs> it is now yeah it ins- yeah and uh <laughs> the craziness of my brain but um but, but after 20 minutes the last the, the best way to explain it is after 20 minutes of this process when you cook a piece of meat and let's say you're doing it like in a cook and bag process it allows that last bite of your chicken beef pork turkey, whatever you're doing here, to taste exactly like the first bite, all the way through the the same amount of juiciness, the same amount of flavor. And if you're working with a tougher piece of meat, like a long time ago, back in the days of like carving stations, you think about like cutting up the pork loin. And a lot of people would say, I don't like pork because it's dry. Well, even if you were at home or in the restaurant and you have your low tumble marinade, you could add a little water to your seasoning to make this really flavorful liquid, kind of like a static liquid brine. And you could roll the meat in that again for 15 or 20 minutes. And the meat will accept all of those flavorful seasoning juices. Mm -hmm. And it really just helps with the texture of the meat. You could go from having a pork tenderloin or a pork loin that might be a little bit more temperamental to cook And now you've given yourself the leg up, maybe five extra minutes of cooking in either direction to help control that texture. You just get a a richer, meatier, moist product. And I could literally go on forever about tumble marinating. But if you've never experienced it, to be able to, like you mentioned, sometimes you only get the flavor right there on top. You get it all the way through the meat. And it's so simple. Like you were talking about the mole before, chef, or taking your chilies and toasting them and grabbing a few other ingredients and having them going in the oven and then blending it all together and putting a splash of oil in there and frying it. You could tumble all of that in the meat and it'll pick it all up. It's just yep. a, a faster, more 
consistent process because as you're cooking, you can say, oh, I know that this piece of meat will take on approximately this much. And when you start working in like grams and percentages, what is it that uh, Chef Marco would always say for Michelin star uh, restaurants? Uh, it's all about consistency. Of you really get consistent then. And if you can pull that off every single time, every single night in the kitchen, that's going to be the best food every day, yep. hand over hand. My experience, too, with tumble marination is, and you touched on a lot of it, right? So there's that gentle massaging that's going on. I mean, mm-hmm. when you think about it, if we're at home and we put something into a plastic zipper bag, yes. you, you go out there every two hours and you turn it over and you massage it, but you're letting it sit all day. Over time, yes, it's going to take on that marinade. Here, two things. You're controlling it. You learn percentages. Mm-hmm. If, if I can remember correctly, I think, you know, from a static marination standpoint, I think it's really in that 9 to oh, 12 tops, yes. maybe 13, 14% that it's going to take on. No more than that, right? That's that's pretty much the, the capacity that unless you have other ingredients that, you know, help it maintain or, or hold on to moisture more – But you can do the same thing. So let's just say, let's go with an even number of 10%. I take my weight of my sirloin tips that I stick into that tumbler, and I go 10% of that in my marinade. I got my marinade mixed up. I dump it in there. Ultimately, it should be all sucked up at the end. Yep. And it happens in 20 minutes' time. And now you're good to go. So that's where your consistency comes in. Every tumbler, every, every experience, every cut of meat's going to be a little different on how long and so forth. You, you can over-tumble too, right, and make things, the texture start to change. But there's typically a vacuum that's involved too, right? So you pull a yes. vacuum on it when it's in the tumbler, and that opens up all of those muscle fibers, right? So mm-hmm. they basically, you know, they pull themselves out, which also helps – Make it a little bit more tender just from that action itself, but it also helps that marinade get into that meat. Now, as you mentioned, every bite, you know, there's flavor that goes all the way through. And if you do it that way, it's not going to be under marinated or over marinated. You control the process. You dump it out, you stick it in your pan, and now you know when you go to make those skewers or whatever it is that you're doing, it's got the same flavor every single time. This is like the best way if, if you're running a sandwich shop or, you know, or any type of a, a, a restaurant or something like that. That's how you get consistency. Now, I've, I'm not going to take a tenderloin or strip steak or, no. or a ribeye and throw them in there and do this, right? You know, it's different. Those are different experiences, but there's yes. so many different cuts. Um, you know, we talk about beef more than anything here, but there's many cuts out there that would benefit from that tumble marination, both flavor-wise and texture-wise. And the great thing about tumble marinade, and just you touched on a chef with the vacuum pulling and the percentage-wise, like 9, 10, 11, 12%, you know, when you start working with a tumble marinade, if, if you can get everything just lined up perfectly and your sun and moon align and, and you kind of just are familiar with it, you can sometimes double that. You know, you can hit that uh, a higher percentage of marinade I've played around with even what does a marinade look like at maybe 18 or 19 or 20 percent. And there are some meats out there that will accept that much. And the boldness of flavor is just crazy. Now, is that the norm? No. But, you know, I'm really glad you brought up that whole uh, vacuum process 
because it does. It just gives you so much more wiggle room to play with. When I think along the lines of marinating that way, and then I think about sous vide cooking. Ah, uh, yes. Did, so that's fairly new. I mean, multiple years now, but not everybody's into it. And I can understand yep. why people think they do. And and listen, I like to tumble marinade, and I like to use sous vide, but not for all products. They don't all do. Des- belong there they don't all do well um some things you know what it's just always gonna be better just to take it and cook it properly um right then and there right but other times there's a lot of benefit that goes into those processes and and here tumble marinating again you know for some of those cheaper cuts it's gonna be a benefit for consistency it's gonna be a benefit it's definitely worth if let's just say you do have sous vide in the back of the house and and you've got a, a vacuum machine, you can at least play around a little bit with you know especially if it's like an atmospheric vacuum machine that you know yes. chamber vac, you can play around with putting a marinade and sucking you know the vacuum on that, and it's without the tumble process it takes longer. But it's still not as long as just static marinating. And you you can massage that a little bit by hand. But, you know, in an hour's time, you can get yourself a much more marinated, uh, you know, finished product than you would with just static marinating. You know, Jeff, I like to think of sous vide because um, I I think um, there are benefits to it. But it's kind of like that idea of the right tool for the right job. You would Mm -hmm. never chop with a a paring knife or a fish knife and you'd never fillet a fish with a a knife and you'd never sear you know a beautiful piece of steak in the thinnest aluminum pan and and that's probably the best way i think to think about sous vide you know what's the best practice for it no it's not going to be great for everything but um when paired up right with the right procedures you can get some pretty good results oh yeah no doubt yeah well, and, and just to touch a little bit more on that sous vide, one thing I learned, you know, of course, is, you know, back to, say, black pepper. You know, yeah. you're, you're, you're going to season up a steak and you're going to put some salt and you're going to crack some black pepper and you're going to put that on there. You don't have to use as much. If oh, you, no. Because those natural oils, uh, resins, oleo resins, whatever that you're getting from there, they stay in that bag. They don't flash off. You don't lose any of it, right? So your salt, your salts need to be pretty much normal. Um, but when you're getting into your spices like that or herbs, even just herbs, right? You know, one little piece of thyme is going to handle a whole bunch of meat where typically you would chop up a whole bunch for that, right? Because you don't lose anything on there. So, yeah, again, benefits, tying the whole uh, flavors and seasonings into the sous vide process. But again, something to think about. Yeah, um, one thing we used to do was we would take our, our, our sprig of thyme, sprig of rosemary, couple black peppercorns, and we would roll it up actually in uh, maybe like a crushed garlic clove. And we would roll it up and snip the ends off and then put it in the bag. So all that flavor would circulate, but it was never touching the meat or the vegetable. So, uh, um, Little little fun sachet trick for anyone wanting to play around with sous vide. Okay, so it would be in the bag, but then we, okay, gotcha. I know what you're but saying, it, but yep. it wouldn't be touching the meat physically. Itself. It would just be yep, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. That, no, that makes a lot of sense. And again, only a little bit for what's in that. Only package. a little bit. Yep. Hey, chef. There's so much more to talk about, so let's pause right here. When we come back, we'll continue to talk about premium beef and seasonings. Listeners, be sure to subscribe so you don't miss part two of this episode. To get the next episode delivered to your inbox, subscribe on our website, sterlingsilvermeats.com. 
Just sign up for our e-newsletter at the top of the page. You can also subscribe on your favorite podcast platforms. And be sure to follow at Sterling Silver Premium Meats on Instagram. Until next time, we'll see you in the kitchen with Sterling Silver Premium Meats. Meats.